This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. This week on Face the Nation, as Americans push to mend the racial divide, conflict continues between the public and our leaders on how to get there. We'll speak exclusively with Attorney General William Barr and former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. From Washington to Philadelphia and Chicago to San Francisco. Saturday saw the largest demonstrations of support yet for cracking down on police brutality and ending racism following the death of George Floyd. The overwhelming majority of the protests were peaceful and the message was pointed. Americans have had enough of scenes like the death of George Floyd and this incident from Buffalo where police officers have been charged with a felony after knocking a 75-year-old man to the ground and leaving him there. When and how will this end? In cities like Minneapolis, they've moved to ban the use of knee-to-neck holds, but some Americans are clamoring for more action. President Trump's answer to the problem is law and order from local law enforcement, the National Guard, or even the military. You have to dominate the streets. You can't let what's happening happen. We'll talk to the president's attorney general, William Barr. Plus, the problems within our society. Despite a lower-than-anticipated jobless rate for May, the number of unemployed African Americans increased to almost 17%. How do we level the playing field? Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice will join us. Finally, a look at the potential impact of the not-so-socially-distanced protests with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Across the country, there is a collective sigh of relief following a day and night in which the vast majority of protests were peaceful. But America's widening racial divide on top of the nation's economic and medical crisis is painful. Political commentator Bakari Sellers may have put it best when he told our CBS This Morning colleagues, this is like 1918 meets 1968. You have a great pandemic and you have a country that is teetering on edge. With that, we begin with Chris Van Cleve. He has been covering the protests in the streets of the nation's capital since they began. Margaret, good morning. A week ago, this fencing wasn't here. It is separating where the protests have been from the White House and has become a bit of a mural. Now, early this morning, we want to show you some video. D.C.'s Mayor Muriel Bowser and Congressman and Civil Rights Leader John Lewis came out here as people were cleaning up from the rally yesterday. The congressman called the protests moving and impressive. 
Washington, D.C., besieged by peaceful protest. Huge crowds marched from the Capitol and the Lincoln Memorial, flooding the streets outside the White House, unified in the message painted on the road below their feet, Black Lives Matter. We just want justice. We just want to stop being killed. Protests nationally were large and generally peaceful. But it remained tense in Portland, Oregon. After police gave orders to disperse overnight, officers were seen forcing people back with batons. And flashbangs were used to disperse a crowd in Seattle. It's been a week that's torn at the fabric of our nation. The death of George Floyd at the hands of police sparked nights of violence across the country. CBS News has learned Monday morning President Trump demanded 10,000 active duty troops be deployed to major cities. Defense Secretary Mark Esper and Attorney General Bill Barr pushed back in a heated Oval Office meeting. Hours later, this moment, as police in riot gear moved peaceful protesters for a presidential photo op. 7 p.m. Saturday, and what a difference a week makes. Gone are the officers in riot gear, replaced by a sea of peaceful demonstrators with a serious message. They say they're not leaving until they're heard. We met the Gebra family near the White House. It was 11-year-old Izana's idea to come. We need to bring attention to these black people dying for no reason. And throughout this country, a difficult conversation about race, even between protesters and police. We're here to listen. We here, we're here to hear you well. And, you know, I absolutely commend what you're doing. And straight I want sure more than for you all to hear me out. I want systemic change. Those 10,000 active duty troops that President Trump wanted were never deployed, but thousands of National Guard from around the country were. D.C.'s mayor is demanding they be sent home. Margaret. Earlier this morning, I went to the Justice Department to speak with Attorney General Bill Barr. In his role as the nation's top law enforcement officer, he used the full force of the federal government, including agents from the FBI, ATF, Border Patrol, Bureau of Prisons, and the Drug Enforcement Administration to assist the National Guard and local police in an effort to end the violence and looting that happened earlier in the week in Washington. 1,600 active-duty troops were also put on standby. A senior administration official told our CBS's David Martin uh, that in a meeting at the White House on Monday morning, uh, the president demanded that 10,000 active duty troops be ordered into American streets. Is that accurate? No, that's completely false. That's completely false. Uh, Sunday night... The president did not demand that? No, he did not demand that. What happened? I came over on on Monday morning for a meeting. The night before had been the most violent, as one of the police officials told us, the D.C. police, it was the most violent day in Washington in 30 years, something that the media has not done a very good job of covering. Uh, And there had been a a riot right along uh, Lafayette uh, Park. I was called over and asked if I would coordinate federal civil agencies and that the Defense Department would provide whatever support I needed or we needed uh, to protect federal property at the White House, federal personnel. Uh, The decision was made to have at the ready and on hand in the vicinity some regular troops. But everyone agreed that the use of regular troops is a last resort uh, and that as long as matters can be controlled with other resources, they should be. I felt and the Secretary of Defense felt we had adequate resources and wouldn't need to use federal troops. But in case we did, we wanted them nearby. There was never, the President never asked or suggested that we needed to deploy regular troops at that point. It's been done from time to time in our history. We try to avoid it. uh, And I'm happy that we were able to avoid it on this occasion. So there were active duty troops put on standby. They were not deployed. The 82nd Airborne was put on standby, but not sent into the streets. Some 82nd uh, Airborne military police were brought into the area, but they were not brought into D.C. So what part, I just want to make sure that we're precise here, what part of that conversation, as it's been relayed uh, to CBS and to other news organizations, is false? Did the president not demand active duty troops? Well, your question to me just a moment ago was, did he demand them on the streets? Did he demand them in D.C.? No, we had them on standby in case they were needed. Right, which they were put on standby. They were not deployed. Right. So in our reporting, um, we were also told that you, 
the Defense Secretary Mark Esper and General Milley all oppose the idea of actually deploying these active duty troops onto the streets. Is that accurate? I think our position was common, uh, which was that they should only de be deployed if as a last resort, uh, and that we didn't think we would need them. Every, I think everyone was on the same page. Do you think that the president has the authority to unilaterally send in active duty troops if the governors oppose it? Oh, absolutely. The, under the uh, Anti-Insurrection Act, uh, the, the, the president can use regular troops uh, to suppress rioting. The, Confederate, the Confederacy in our country opposed the use of federal troops to restore order and suppress an insurrection, so the federal government sometimes doesn't listen to governors in circumstances. The last time that this has happened was the L.A. riots in 1992 when the governor of California asked for active duty troops. That's You're right. saying your understanding and the law as you interpret it and would support is that the president has the ability to put active duty troops on American streets even if governors object? It's happened numerous times and the answer to that is yes. You would support that? Well, it depends on the circumstances. I was involved in the L.A. riots and the Rodney King matter. We tried to use uh, non-military forces. I sent 2,000 federal law enforcement officers out there in one day, uh, but it was overwhelming, uh, and the National Guard couldn't handle it. And uh, Governor uh, Pete Wilson uh, asked for federal troops. And he asked for it, though? Yes. That's a key distinction. Or he, he approved the use of federal troops, but those troops were on standby as well. Because I think a number of people would be surprised to hear, and it's been reported, that you opposed sending in active duty troops on principle. You're saying you would support it. As a last resort. So in this Monday meeting with the president, when the defense secretary, who has now publicly said that he opposed using the Insurrection Act. You said what to the president? I don't think uh, the Secretary of Defense said he opposed it. I think he said uh, that it was a last resort, and he didn't think it was necessary. I think we all agree that it's a last resort, but it's ultimately the president's decision. The, the reporting is completely false on this. Do you believe there is systemic racism in law enforcement? I think there's racism in the United States still, but I don't think that the uh, law enforcement system is systemically racist. I understand the, the distrust, however, of the African-American community, given the history in this country. Uh, I think we have to recognize that for most of our history, our institutions were explicitly racist. Since uh, the 1960s, I think we've been in a phase of reforming our institutions and making sure that they're in sync with our laws and aren't fighting a rear guard action to impose inequities. And you think that's working? I think, I think the reform is a difficult task, but I think it is working and progress has been made. I think one of the best examples is the military. The military used to be explicitly racist institution, and now I think it's in the vanguard uh, of, of bringing the races together and providing equal opportunities. Opportunity. I think law enforcement has been going through the same process. Do you think there should be some tweaking of the rules, reduced immunity, to go after some of the bad cops? I don't think you need to reduce immunity uh, to, to go after the bad cops, because that would result, certainly, in, in police pulling back. It's, you know, policing is the toughest job in the country, and I, and I frankly think that we have generally uh, the vast, overwhelming majority of police are good people. They're civic-minded people who believe in serving the public. They do so bravely. They do so righteously. But and the bad cops. I, th I think that there are instances of bad cops, and I think we have to be careful about automatically assuming that the actions of an individual necessarily mean that their organization is rotten. All organizations have people who engage in misconduct. And you sometimes have to be careful as to when you ascribe that to the whole organization and when it really is some errant member who isn't following the rules. But doesn't the opening the pattern of practice investigation to a place like Minneapolis, where there are questions about the broader issues with policing, it wasn't just the one officer 
wouldn't that answer that question? Well, that's exactly the reaction that I think has been a problem in the past, uh, which is it just, you know, again, just reacting to this incident by immediately putting the department under investigation doesn't necessarily result in, 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 in improving the situation. But I would say that in the first instance, the governor has announced an investigation of the police department. The governor, Governor Waltz, a Democratic governor, is investigating the police department. The attorney general of Minnesota is looking into the police department. We stand ready uh, to act if we think it's necessary, but I don't think uh, necessarily starting a, a pattern of practice investigation at this stage is warranted. Another thing is we have to look at some of the evidence. I mean, people, you know, the fact is that the criminal justice system at both the state and the federal level moved instantaneously on this, and we move quickly with our investigation, but we still have to look into uh, what kind of use of force policies uh, are used in that department, what the training has been, and things like that. That's not something we can do overnight. Coming up after our break, the Attorney General tells us about the forcible clearing of Lafayette Park ahead of the President's visit there on Monday. Also, I want to make sure to note that CBS News stands by our David Martin's reporting. And we want to clarify here that the Secretary of Defense, Esper, does oppose the Insurrection Act. You can hear for yourself. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. We'll be back in one minute. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we're back now with more from Attorney General William Barr. I want to ask you about some of the events of the week. Um, on Monday, Lafayette Park was cleared of protesters. You've spoken about this. Uh, the federal agents who were there report up to you. Did you think it was appropriate for them to use smoke bombs, tear gas, pepper balls, projectiles at what appeared to be peaceful protesters? They were not peaceful protesters, and that's one of the big lies that the, the media is, is, seems to be perpetuating. Three of my CBS point. colleagues were there. We talked to yeah. them. They did not hear warnings. They did not see there were the protesters throwing anything. There were three warnings anything. given. But, but let's get back to why we took that action. On Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, okay, there were... Uh, violent riots in, at Lafayette Park, where the park police run a constant attack at the, uh, behind their bike rack fences. On Sunday, things reached a crescendo. The officers were pummeled with bricks. Crowbars were used to pry up the, uh, the pavers at the park, and they were hurled at police. There were fires uh, set in not only St. John's Church, but a historic building at Lafayette was burned down. These were things that looters did. Not looters. These were these were the the, the violent rioters who were uh, dominated uh, Lafayette Park. But what I'm they broke about into the Treasury Department when it was I'm, a peaceful I'm, protest. Let me let me get to this because this has been totally obscured by the media. They broke into the Treasury Department, and uh, they were injuring police. Uh, that night, the Sunday park, night, Sunday night, the park police prepared a plan to clear 8th Street and put a, a larger perimeter around the White House so they could build a more permanent fence on Lafayette. This is something you approved on Sunday night? No. The park police on their own on, on Sunday night determined this was the proper approach. When I came in Monday, it was clear to me that we did have to increase the perimeter on that side of Lafayette Park and push it out one block. That decision was made by me in the morning. It was communicated to all the police agencies, including the Metropolitan Police, at 2 p.m. that day. The, the effort was to move the perimeter one block, and it had to be done when we had enough people in place to achieve that. And that decision, as I say, was communicated to the police at 2 p.m. 
the operation was run by the park police. Mm -hmm. The park police uh, was facing what they considered to be a very uh, rowdy and, and non-compliant crowd, and there were projectiles being hurled at the police. And at that point, it was not to respond. On Monday, you're saying there were projectiles. On Monday, yes, because they were. As I'm saying, three of my colleagues were there. Yeah. They did not see projectiles being thrown. I was there. When I that was happened. there. They were thrown. I saw them thrown. And you believe that what the park police did using tear gas and projectiles was appropriate. Here's what the media is missing. This was not an operation to respond to that particular crowd. It was an operation to move the perimeter one block. And the methods they used you think were appropriate. Is when that what they you're met saying? resistance, yes. They announced three times they didn't move. By the way, there was no tear gas used. The tear gas was used Sunday when they had to clear 8th Street to allow the fire department to come in to save St. John's Church. That's when tear gas was used. There were it, chemical irritants, the part. No, there were not chemical said. irritants. Pepper spray is not a chemical irritant. It's not chemical. Pepper spray, you're saying, pepper is what balls, was used. Pepper balls. Right. And you believe that was appropriate. What I want to show you is what... A lot of people at home who were watching this on television saw and their perception of events. I want you to see what the public at home saw. President of law and order and an ally of all peaceful protesters. But in recent days, our nation has been gripped by professional anarchists, violent mobs, arsonists, looters, criminals, rioters, Antifa, and others. A number of state and local governments. So while the president is saying that he appreciates peaceful protests, around the same time, well, six minutes, six minutes difference. Around the same time, the area is being cleared of what appear to be peaceful protesters using some force. And after the speech is finished, the president then walks out of the White House to the same area where the protesters had been and stands for a photo op in front of the church where the protesters had been. These events look very connected to people at home. In an environment where the broader debate is about heavy-handed use of force and law enforcement, was that the right message for Americans to be receiving. Well, the message is sometimes communicated by the media. I didn't see any uh, video being played on the media of what was happening Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But, all, but I, this all, I heard was, all I heard was comments about how peaceful the protesters were. I didn't hear about the fact that there were 150 law enforcement smoke officers injured and many taken to the hospital with concussions. Uh, so uh, it wasn't a peaceful protest. We had to get control over Lafayette Park, and we had to do it as, as soon as we were able to do that. But you understand how these events appear connected. The well, it's the job of the media to tell the truth. They were not Well, this connected. is what I'm asking you. Did you know when you gave the green light for these actions to be taken that the president was going to be going to that very same area for a photo op? I gave the green light at 2 o'clock. Obviously, I didn't know that the president was going to be speaking later that day. You had no idea? No, I, no, I did not. Do you the go-ahead was given at 2 o'clock, and to do it as soon as we were able to do it, to move the perimeter from, from 8th Street to I Street. We're both Catholic. I know you're observant. You're a devout Catholic. Archbishop Gregory of Washington condemned what happened by gassing peaceful protesters. There, there was no gassing. Is, is doing... Is what we saw there doing what you meant when you were on that call with governors and you said to dominate the streets? Mm -hmm. Is that what law enforcement is supposed to be taking away from this? No, on the contrary. My point to the governors and, and what I was saying was uh, that it's important when you're dealing with civil disturbances to have adequate 
uh, forces at hand and out and about so you can control events and not be controlled by events and that it's more dangerous for everybody if you have these wild melees with thinly manned police lines running after protesters with batons and that uh, and that it's important to have adequate forces on the street uh, and so we were encouraging them where they were stretched thin uh, to, to call out National Guard if necessary to restore order. That's what I was talking about. I would say that, that this particular exit, you know, police have to move protesters, sometimes peaceful demonstrators, for a short distance in order to accomplish public safety, and that's what was done here. So there was nothing that you think should have been done differently in hindsight? Well, you know, I, I haven't studied the, the events retrospectively in detail, but I think in general you had the, the qualified law enforcement officials uh, with uh, shields warning and moving uh, a line uh, slowly. Uh, they had mounted officers moving slowly, directing people to move. And most people complied. All right. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, we have more questions for you, but I'm told we're out of time. Thank you. Our full interview with the Attorney General will soon be available on our website. Here's some good news. Face the Nation and CBS Radio are coming to Sirius XM Radio. We'll be rebroadcast every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Channel 124, Sirius XM POTUS. And you can watch our rebroadcast on CBSN. Set your DVR or watch us on demand. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation, including a conversation with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, as well as the latest on the race to find a vaccine for COVID-19 with Dr. Scott Gottlieb. So stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. In addition to former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice's experience as a diplomat, she's also an educator, now the director of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. She's also the great-great-granddaughter of a slave owner and as a child was a friend of one of the young girls killed in the 1963 Birmingham church bombing. She was just a block away when it happened. We spoke to her earlier and asked her what she thinks is different about today's movement. People are a little bit sick and tired of being sick and tired, to quote the great civil rights leader, Fannie Lou Hamer. And I think that is leading people of various backgrounds, different colors, different experiences, to say, how can we really make the outcome different this time? And it's leading people to look at questions about our criminal justice system, about the justice of our institutions. Uh, but more importantly, it's looking, uh, having us look in the mirror at questions about race. Uh, it's a very, very deep and abiding wound in an America that was born with a birth defect of slavery. And uh, I'm really hoping that this time we'll have really honest conversations, conversations that are not judgmental, uh, conversations that are deep, but honest conversations about what we've been through and who we want to be. You wrote in an opinion piece recently that protests will take our country only so far. And if we are to make progress, let us vow to check the language of reclamation at the door. What do you mean by that? We have a very painful history. Uh, Europeans and Africans came to this country together. Africans came in chains. Uh, my, you, my DNA is 40% European. My great-great-grandfather was my great-grandmother's slave owner. That's a very hard truth. But it is a truth of the past. We now have to talk about how to move forward. And when I talk to people of different colors, uh, particularly 
my white friends, my white colleagues, I don't want it to be in the language of recrimination. I want to be in the language of how do we move forward. I think we each have an individual responsibility. It's a collective responsibility, yes, but it's an individual responsibility to ask, uh, what am I going to do specifically? What am I going to do to help heal these wounds and to move our country forward? Because race is still very much a factor uh, in everyday life in America. You said for you personally, Answering the question of what do I do, you focused on education. I come from a family where my grandfather managed as a, as a sharecropper's son to get educated in uh, Alabama in uh, the 1920s. Uh, education was always, for us, a way to break through the barriers of prejudice. And education is not a, a shield against prejudice, but it gives people a fighting chance. If you look at this COVID-19 crisis, it has exposed even deeper inequalities in our society. Just imagine being a child who's trying to learn, to learn at home and the parents don't speak English. The parents don't have an educational background of their own. And contrast that with the kid whose parents are well-educated and who can read to them. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do around inequality. And to your point about the pandemic, I mean, it seems to be widening the existing divide. Just looking at the data, the jobless rate in this country for the black community ticked up in May to 17 percent, and black women in particular are bearing the brunt of that. Where do you see the policy solutions coming from right now? This crisis has exacerbated uh, problems that were there uh, already. And uh, we now have to ask ourselves, are we just going to say, well, my goodness, look at what we've seen. Are we really going to act? We know that in this crisis, if you can work from home, if you are uh, capable of, of being on the Internet, then uh, you can continue to work. You're not unemployed. Knowledge workers are doing better. Let's say every American is going to have broadband. Every American is going to have access to a reliable Internet. And that means people in rural areas. It means people in, in schools that are not uh, well endowed. If you were advising this particular president, what would you be telling him to do at this moment? I would ask the president uh, to, first and foremost, um, speak in the language of unity, uh, the language of empathy. Not everyone is going to agree with any president, uh, with this president. But you have to speak to every American, not just to those who might agree with you. And you have to speak about the deep wounds that we have and that we're going to overcome them. I've heard the president talk about the resilience of Americans. I'd love to hear more of that. Twitter and tweeting are, are not great ways for complex thoughts for complex messages. Uh, when the president speaks, it, it needs to be uh, from a place of, of thoughtfulness, from a place of uh, having really uh, honed the message so that it reaches all Americans. Um, and by the way, not just the president. I would love to hear this from our leaders in Congress on both sides of the aisle. I would love to hear it from mayors and from governors and from others. Um, leaders at this particular point Mm -hmm. need to do everything that they can to overcome, uh, not intensify our divisions. He has mourned George Floyd's death, but he's used language like when the looting starts, the shooting starts. He said his supporters love the black people. When you hear phrases like that, how does that land with you? Do you just dismiss it because it's President Trump? Well, no. The, the president, uh, obviously, the uh, shooting and looting, he said that he didn't know that historical context. And so I would say think about the historical context before you say something, because it is a deep wound. And uh, the presidency is uh, special in that regard. Uh, people look to the Oval Office, as we've looked to the Oval Office throughout our history, uh, for, for messages, for signals. And uh, as I said, the president has used some language that I really very, very much admire, like the resilience of the American people. Uh, just be careful about those messages. I'm not advising the president, but if I were, I would say, um, let's put tweeting aside for a little bit and, and talk to us, uh, have a conversation with us. And I think uh, we need that, and I think he can do it.
Retired General Jim Mattis said that it wasn't, in his interpretation, um, unintentional. In fact, he said, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people. He does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. Do you believe that it's intentional? Do you agree with Mattis? Well, look, I have enormous respect for Jim Mattis, and he's a man of great integrity. He's a patriot. He's my friend. And he spoke to something that he needed to speak to. What I want to speak to is the future and what we do here over the next several months. Uh, we are having protests that need to be peaceful, but we've always moved ahead in part by protest. There's no excuse for the criminality and for the looting. That's not what who we are and what we are. But I will tell you, as somebody who grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, Jim Crow, Alabama, when if a black man was shot by a policeman, it wouldn't have even been a footnote in the newspaper. I'm really grateful to people who are going out now and saying, no, that is not acceptable. I'm grateful to those people who are thinking about how to support good police, who are thinking about how to support all of those people who put their lives on the line every day to protect us, but also to say to those who do not have our best interest at, at heart, who don't undertake that obligation uh, to protect and defend uh, without regard to color uh, enough. We won't put up with that either. And so um, this is a time for every American to speak to our unity, but to also be very cognizant of how we describe our differences, how we address our differences, and especially how we address one another uh, with empathy. Is there any circumstance in which you think it would be acceptable in these days to use what the president said to governors he would use, which was the Insurrection Act, to send active duty military into American cities? Well, I would absolutely um, advise against it, particularly at this time. I, look, uh, the Founding Fathers were very smart about this. Uh, Thomas Jefferson talked about the citizen-soldier, and the embodiment of the citizen-soldier these days is the National Guard and Reserve. They come from these communities. They are of these communities. They're trained in everything from uh, dealing with uh, natural disasters to dealing with issues like crowd, crowd control. And when the local police can't handle it, the National Guard's the right, uh, the right answer. Our military isn't trained to do this. Our military is trained for the battlefield. And this isn't a battlefield in that sense. Some of America's adversaries, Russia, Iran, China, they are using the images of what happened to uh, Mr. Floyd and what is happening on the streets of American cities right now in their own state propaganda. Do you see this racial divide as a national security threat to us? I would say to those, particularly in places like China and Russia and Iran, who may want to use this for propaganda, oh, let's not be absurd. Uh, this is not Tiananmen Square, where you mowed down people who disagreed with the government. Uh, this is not the invasion of Crimea, where you took land from your neighbor. Uh, this is not the Green Revolution in Iran, where you killed people wantonly because they wouldn't agree with the theocratic government. And I would even say to our friends abroad in places like Europe, where I'm seeing demonstrations in support of what is happening here, thank you for your support, but please look in the mirror. Please ask yourself in countries in Europe and countries all across the world, what are you doing about racial and ethnic inequality in your own circumstances? Um, America has gotten better because we have been willing to confront our problems. And we're going to confront our problems again. We're confronting them now, and I think we will move forward this time. But um, I, I really don't need to be lectured by Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping about uh, peaceful protest when they have themselves uh, use their own force uh, just because people wanted to criticize the government. That is not, is what, that is not what is happening here. Noted. Uh, Madam Secretary, you did not support President Trump in 2016. Seeing what you've seen, will you support him in 2020? 
as I've often said, when I'm ready to speak about American politics, I'll come back to you, and I'll, you'll be the first to know when I want to speak about American politics. Uh, right now, what I want to speak to is my fellow Americans and um, to understand the deep divisions that we have, to understand what it is to be black. You asked about the military earlier. Uh, let's remember, too, that uh, our people in uniform also come from different backgrounds. They come from different races. They're united in a common cause, but this is hard for them, too. And I know that their commanders are aware of the painful uh, conversations that need to be need to take place even within our military. But one great thing is when we unite for a common cause, as they often do, uh, it helps us to overcome those differences. It's a pleasure being with you. God bless. Secretary Rice mentioned the international show of support. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer reports on that movement around the world. In London, thousands poured into the streets around Parliament on Saturday in solidarity with American protesters. Their message, black lives matter everywhere, and so does justice. What do we want? Justice! When do we want it? George Floyd's death galvanized demonstrators from Berlin to Seoul, South Korea, to Rio in Brazil, to Sydney, Australia, where it has a special resonance, especially among Aboriginal people beaten or killed in custody. In 2015, Australia had its own George Floyd, David Dungay, who died in custody shouting, I can't breathe. As the sign says, same story, different soil. There's the same anger, too, though overall the protests this weekend were peaceful. In London, police skirmished briefly with a small knot of demonstrators, and there was a flurry of excitement when a police horse bolted. But the main message coming from the mostly young, multiracial crowd was, enough is enough. And to Americans, you are not alone. Margaret, once again today, thousands of Londoners are breaking the lockdown rules. They've come out to stage a fresh protest today in front of the American embassy. That's our Liz Palmer. Thank you. Same story, different soil. We'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. We go now to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Dr. Fauci, in an interview uh, on Friday, said that these protests are a perfect setup for the spread of the virus. So even though these protesters are young and wearing masks, you believe this will ignite more of an outbreak? Well, look, we're certainly going to see transmission coming out of these gatherings. There's no question about that. The prevalence in the United States of infection right now is about one in 200 people. So you can estimate how many people probably have the infection um, in these gatherings. I think the, the, the idea of reducing the risk um, from these protests is a shared responsibility. There are steps that the protesters can take, and you see many of them wearing masks in these protests and understanding the risks. There's also things authorities can do, I think, to reduce the risks in terms of how they de-escalate these situations. The best science we have on this question comes from a recent study that came out of Germany, where there were large gatherings in Germany in a small region there, and they looked at what the spread was coming out of those gatherings. Now, mind you, these were festive gatherings, but they were large outdoor gatherings nonetheless. And the science showed that there was about a two and a half times increase in the rate of transmission as a result of bringing people together in large gatherings. So we have some scientific basis to understand that these, these kinds of settings do create risk. And, and these protests are happening in places that are largely hot spots, Minneapolis, Washington, D.C. Uh, I know Houston, Texas, where uh, George Floyd's body is going to be buried uh, in this coming week, also expects large crowds. What are you seeing in those places? 
Well, look, the protesters understood the risks, many of them. I think that's evidenced by the fact that they wore masks and they made a judgment that, um, you know, they were worth the risk in terms of going out and protesting what are legitimate underlying grievances. I think you're right. These are occurring in hot spots. We're likely to see cases go up. I think trying to tease out what the contribution is from the protest versus the contribution just of the general reopening is going to be hard. But when you look at cities like New York City, where cases have come down dramatically, you have below 100 hospitalizations a day right now. I think we're probably going to see an uptick. We're going to see an uptick in other major cities where there have been these protests. It's hard to judge just how much right now, and it's going to take a couple of weeks. We're probably going to have to get a few transmission cycles out to really judge what the impact was. I think what the protesters can do is try to take precautions, wear masks, distance where they can, um, and try to avoid, you know, things like getting in contact with elderly people, people who are vulnerable after attending these protests. Right. I know a number of mayors have told attendees to go get a COVID test. I want to ask you about where we are with vaccines. Um, you know, Secretary Azar was on this program just about three weeks ago, and he told us the administration was going to unveil their four to six selections for a vaccine, uh, the, the final candidates. New York Times reported this week that's going to be imminent. What is the delay here? Well, I'm not sure there's a delay. There was reporting this week that looked like it came off administration officials that they've made a selection of at least five candidates. Um, Those were two mRNA vaccines, RNA-based vaccines, where you're delivering the genetic material from the virus to code for the production of the protein on the virus that you want people to develop antibodies against. And in three vaccines that are using viral vectors to deliver that same protein, it's called a spike protein, it's what the virus uses to invade ourselves. These are very novel platforms. I'm on the board of one company that's developing one of these platforms, an mRNA platform, that company's Pfizer. Um, I think they also need to think about trying to include some older style vaccines in that that mix. Sanofi has a, a vaccine that's based on a delivering the protein directly. That's an older approach, more tried and true. So in addition to the novelty, which is likely to deliver more immunogenicity, I think that's the judgment they're making, they should probably fall back on some older-style technologies as well. That's, in fact, what the Chinese are doing. They're using very old-style vaccines, and they may beat us to the market because of that. So they may have vaccines that are less protective, but be able to get them to their population earlier, and they're probably making a judgment that partial protection earlier is better than full protection later. So you told us May 24th the candidates were Oxford, AstraZeneca, Moderna, Pfizer, Merck, Johnson & Johnson, and Sanofi. What should be added to that? Any surprises? Well, what wasn't added to that based on the reporting this week was Sanofi. So the five vaccines were the five you mentioned with the exception of Sanofi. Sanofi has that protein-based vaccine that's based on the same platform that they used to develop their flu vaccine, that, frankly, I think should be included. Now, I'm not aware of how far along they are, whether there's been any issues with their development plan that caused regulators to make judgments or public health officials to make judgments to not include that. And perhaps they will include that. Perhaps the reporting isn't complete. The other company that has a protein-based vaccine that appears to be far along in terms of going into phase one studies is Novavax. And so that's another one that might merit some considerations. But I would reach back and include some older-style approaches in addition to the novelty, the, the, the okay. issue is, I think, that the more novel approaches are going to be more immunogenic, probably. Right. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We asked one of the most prolific writers we know for his thoughts this week. Here's John Dickerson. In his inaugural address, President Trump promised that... The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. He promised action on behalf of those who had been ignored by the powerful and to fix a system that had kept them ignored. This week, protesters took to the streets to fix a broken system. They marched on behalf of forgotten men and women. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. Forgotten that they were citizens forgotten that they were human. President George W. Bush said Floyd's death resulted from systemic racism, the latest in a long series of tragedies. Not incidents, 
but victims of a system that had forgotten them. The marchers pushing across the nation sought justice, which starts with a recognition. Some answer was required to the cry of pain, to show that it was heard not in the ear but in the heart. Justice requires a hearing. This was a moment for a president. A few paragraphs and the usual brief fibrillation of public care were not enough. In a nation dedicated to equality, the president is the one official who represents everybody and who could use his office to focus national concern. A president could bear witness. We know what it looks like when a president considers an issue vital. He takes emergency action. When he doesn't, that sends a signal, too. Monday night, President Trump made his emergency move. He walked from the White House to St. John's, the Church of the Presidents, spending the full armory of political capital, symbolism, and concern. He did so not as a balm, but a rebuke. He held the Bible not for comfort, but as a cudgel. Protesters had come to the White House to ask that their agony not be swept aside this time. Law and order president's show of force, they were swept aside by shield and smoke. It will not soon be forgotten, which is what the forgotten men and women and their allies hoped the president would help them say about their cause, too. We'll be talking with John next week about his new book, The Hardest Job in the World. We'll see you then. Thank you all for watching. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were Attorney General Bill Barr, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News Twitter, and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Dars. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.